Turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. That is where we will be this morning as we, can, as we end our study in the book of Joel. Um, we will take a few weeks to study some of the different marks of the church. And then we will, then we will begin a book, a study through the book of Acts. So let me encourage you to uh, begin your own personal study in that book. Before we go to this text today, let me pray for us, ask for the Lord's help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, I pray that you would teach us from it and direct us through it. This is a, a difficult passage um, for different reasons for us. This is a passage about judgment, but not about us receiving the judgment. And so that. Help us to understand how to receive this word, what to do with it in our lives, how to see it working itself out in the world around us. Lord, convict us of our own sin, that we might see you more clearly, that we might be people who make peace, that we might be people who love others. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so to introduce this passage, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, not a far away from, from Joel, at least as far as your Bible is concerned, several hundred years as far as history is concerned. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And I want to, this is a familiar passage, I want to read this, and this is, this introduces our passage in Joel chapter 3 very well, I think. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Behold, or before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food, I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison. And you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Note verse 40 there in Matthew chapter 25 this that he is saying to the sheep that he loved the ones that are going to enter into 
uh, his kingdom. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least or to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Could be translated brothers and sisters, even. Who's he talking about? Who are the least of these? His brothers and sisters. Oftentimes, I think when we hear this passage taught, we hear it taught from a perspective of the least of these or the poor, uh, the needy. This isn't wrong necessarily, but they're specifically noted as being the needy and the poor among believers. So then why are the goats judged? It's for their lack of love for the sheep of Jesus Christ, for his people that he came to save. Ultimately, yes, we know from the rest of Scripture that they are judged for their unbelief, but in their unbelief, they have committed atrocities against the church, against the bride of Christ. And he stands and judges them in this passage and in our passage today. Very similar idea. All the people are going to be gathered together in this valley. The nations of the world are going to be judged for the things that they had done to the people of God. Again, this passage is looking at a very near sense, probably Babylonian captivity, subsequent exile, the nation of Israel being delivered from their captors over and over again. However, there's a very far-reaching implication as well, the day that Christ will come back and judge the living and the dead. How will he do so? We're going to get this picture in Joel 3. You see it in Matthew 25, over and over again in the book of Revelation. Several places in Scripture we see this same idea. This passage, I think, serves as a great follow-up from last week's message, which was a message of hope and restoration. This week's message is one of warning, final redemption for the people of God. And the warning stands. Anyone that stands against the Lord of hosts stands in a horrible, horrible place. In stark contrast, the people of God are in a place of permanent refuge and rest. As we've seen in the rest of this book and throughout all of Scripture, where is that rest? Jesus Christ. He is the rest. So as we consider this last chapter, we're going to look at two main ideas. The warning against the nations. The rest for God's people. So with that, please stand as we read from Joel chapter 3. In its entirety, Joel chapter 3, starting at verse 1. For behold, in those days at that time, when I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there, on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations, they have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on you, on your own head, swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them. I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, 
and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away. For the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put a sickle, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people. A stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall overflow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and the fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord in the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom or Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever. Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. I do this often, particularly as we finish a book, point out this idea of the redemptive ark that we see in the book of Joel. I think this passage is not only a great, a great way to end the book of Joel, but it's also a great way for us to end the year. Caps off this whole idea of a redemptive arc, one that we see throughout Scripture, one that we see again and again in the individual narratives that we look at. This idea of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The story began in in this book, a place where fields and trees were full of produce. At least that's the assumption that we can make. And the transition was to a place that was wrecked by a locust plague, being the fall. Then in the end of chapter 2, what do we read about? The redemption of the people. Not only providing for their imminent needs, but their eternal needs, with the coming of Christ, the sending of the Holy Spirit. And now in 3, we have restoration, or some would say consummation. Not only are the people of God going to be restored... But their enemies are finally going to be dealt with, with the only one who can deal with them, the Lord of all creation. This is an important theme throughout the Old and New Testaments. The Old looking forward to the Redeemer, the New Testament looking at Him and back at Him. Both looking at the same person, Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you too, when we begin our study of the book of Acts, one thing that I hope you see, just like we saw in John and Joel and First Samuel, Ephesians, the different books that we've gone through. Jesus is the key. Every single time is a common theme throughout Scripture. 
we'll see him today in Joel chapter 3, which comes to our first point, the warring or the warning against the nations. Verses 1 and 2. For behold, in those days at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of, on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations. They have divided my land. He says, for behold, which should take, help us to, or cause us to want to look back. Behold, why? Well, at the end of chapter two, what was the end of chapter two talking about? The coming of the day of the Lord. This is what's going to be on that day. In those days, again, this is an already fulfillment, meaning that there's going to be the delivery of Israel from its enemy there right then, an imminent enemy. But there's also this not yet fulfillment that happens when Christ sets all people before him, just like we read in Matthew 25. He's going to be there at this place, and he's going to set all the people before him, and he is going to divide them. And notice there was no middle ground in that valley. There was either right or left. We see a very similar picture here, right? Gathered at this place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is probably called that because of a blessing that Israel had found there at some point in its history. Not a lot is known about this place. Definitely not where it is, so we can't go find it, which is probably good for us. Um, we're not sure why it's called that, but there it is. It's a place. And so later in this text, this is called the Valley of Decision. This is a place where judgment will occur. And he says, I will enter into judgment with them there. Consider how terrifying these words are. It kind of sets up the whole picture. You have the Lord of hosts who has called all the nations of the world to this place. His reason for gathering them is to judge them because of what he did or what they did against his people, his children. And look at verse 3. What did they do to his children? Cast lots. They traded. They sold them. They made slaves of them. Think a minute of your own children. Those of you who have children. Think of the things that currently go on in the most recent iteration of the slave trade. It's never really left the earth. It never will, this side of glory. Now think of what you might do to someone in order to protect your child from that thing. We all know what we would do. Consider what the Lord might do at this point. Zechariah 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For he who touches the apple of the Lord's eye, behold, I will shake my hand over them. It's funny that Scripture sometimes, in our own language, and our own understanding of words, doesn't quite do justice to what would actually be meant by shake my hand over them. Just look at Egypt in the Exodus, right? A brief picture of what went on. The plagues that underwent, that, that occurred to the nation of Egypt as a temporary judgment on that nation in which the Lord allowed them to live. That was just a small picture of the judgment that he's talking about here that will be permanent and everlasting, not ending. 
It's not a one-time sending of flies or frogs. It is an eternal, always judgment. And so there's no confusion. The nations that were against the people of God were anyone who did not call upon the name of the Lord, which we read at the end of chapter 2, who did not call upon the name of Jesus and find salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Enter in chapter 3. For behold, I will restore the fortunes of Israel, and I will judge the nations of the world. Now is the time to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And who is Israel? The people of God. Jews, Gentiles, from all over the world that God has drawn to himself. Verses 4 through 6 detail the different nations that had plundered Israel. And God is basically saying he's going to turn that on its head. These are just a few of the nations. He's obviously talking about all the nations. And then verses 9 through 15, you have this stirring up, this calling of the warriors to consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men draw near. And he goes on, even beat your plowshares into swords, which is kind of the opposite of what we read in other parts of Scripture. What is the Lord doing? He's saying, nations of the world, prepare yourself for battle. Why? Because you're going against... You're going to battle against me, the Lord himself. What is the Lord doing here to the nations of the world? He's mocking them. Read that, what we read earlier from Psalm 2. The nations stand against the Lord. The one who is in the heavens laughs. He's mocking them. Everyone prepare the world for war. Even your farmers, your weak, everyone prepare for war But it's not going to help. Look at verse 13. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. These are oftentimes pictures in scripture of the Lord's wrath. The sickle representing the harvest. The wine press literally going in and smashing the grapes. However, in other places of scripture, it's not grape juice that is flowing from the wine press. And it's not grapes that are in them. Isaiah 63, Zechariah 14. I'm just can throw out lots of verses. Revelation 14, 19. The wine press is an object that the Lord uses to judge the nations of the world. This is a picture. He's squishing them, literally, between his toes. Just like the winemaker squishes the grapes. It's mocking. Be like a grizzly bear playing with a baby bird. The picture should be striking to us. The Lord does not plan to make the fight fair. It will not be fair. It will be over in seconds. Verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. This valley of decision has often been used to Maybe talk about a final time when the nations could turn to the Lord. This is not the decision. The valley of decision has nothing to do with the nations here. Uh, The people aren't being given a choice now to follow the Lord. This isn't their decision to make. It's the Lord's decision to make. And he is deciding 
that he is going to judge those nations. He has, he has chose mercy when he sent his son to save his people. And now he is choosing judgment on those who did not call upon the son. Hopefully this is tough. This is real. This is a tough passage for us because we don't like to see the Lord in this way, right? As a warrior prepared for battle, one against multitudes with the one having infinite power over the multitudes. So what do we do with this as a church? First, we have to understand this. Particularly if you have children, you get this. The Lord will have vengeance upon the enemies of his people. And the glory is all his. Hopefully our response to this isn't like an excited yes. We want to see them vanquished. That's hopefully not what's going on because where is this lying? It's lying in our future, right? What, what should be our response to this knowing that the nations of the world, our neighbors who don't know Jesus Christ, are going to be judged in this way against the Lord of hosts? Do we want to see our enemies vanquished? Yes, but there is still time. Who is the enemy? Anyone who isn't for Christ is against Christ. So who is the enemy? Those who don't know him. What a horrible thing to stand face to face with the son of man who is garbed in gear for war. So what do we do then? We have a great work before us. There are still many out there that are his. There are many out there that are his. Jesus Christ said there are many sheep who are not of this fold. My sheep hear my voice and they come. There are many out there who will hear the word of God and respond to it because they are his. So then what do we do? We preach the word of God to every person. We offer Jesus to all people. And when I say offer Jesus, I'm not saying only some of you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Anyone who can hear our voice, this is for you. Call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and be saved. Do we really want this kind of judgment for anyone? No. Do we even want it for our enemies? What did Jesus tell us to do with our enemies? He told us to love them. Why? Because he knows what's in store for those who don't call upon his name. We offer the gospel to everyone. Every single person we offer the gospel to. And also, the message here for us. We should see, brothers and sisters, how much does the Lord care for his people? What is he willing to do on their behalf? He will crush the nations of the world on their behalf. So what should we do when concerning the Lord's people? We should love his people. Matthew 25, again, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. When it comes to the people of God, they are not our enemies. Regardless of what the sign out front of their church says, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The war is not with them. We can debate issues, ultimately things like charismatic gifts, 
infant baptism pale in comparison to the judgment of a holy God. These are tiny, minuscule issues compared to the gospel. We side with our brothers and sisters. We stand with them, preaching Christ side by side. And though there are more and more who don't preach Christ, and we know that, we pray for them, that they would change their ways. And if not, that the Lord would spare them. And that brings us to the next point, the rest for God's people. Look at verse 16 with me. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. The same Lord that will lay waste to his enemies will provide refuge to his own. I think we got to get this as well, right? We're gentle with our own children. We would destroy anyone who wasn't. A mother bear can destroy anything that endangers its child, but it can also gently carry those same cubs in its mouth. It's incredible. What is the Lord willing to do? Crush his enemies, but yet give refuge to his people. Verses 17 and 18. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Notice, he protects his holy city, our future home. And there is abundant provision there. Abundant provision. I think this is another passage that indicates that the earth is our future home. Uh, the unbeliever will be cast out into eternal darkness wherever that is. But his own will remain here where he will reign for all eternity. Ask me next week. I may think something different about that. But scripture seems to indicate that our future home is just the restored and redeemed version of our current home. This is his creation. There's hope in that, right? It's a picture of what he did in our own lives. Did he toss out our current bodies? No. He made our spirits new, but he kept our bodies. Why? What does he plan to do with them? He plans to redeem them. He plans to restore them. He plans to make them new. The same with the earth. It will be made new in those last days. And understand this. This is our hope for eternal life. That the Lord is taking things that are broken and seemingly ruined and making them brand new. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. This is a passage that I often turn to when I hear things that don't make sense or that I don't want to hear concerning the world, things that are going wrong. I'll turn to this passage. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. And I want you to see the parallels of what we just read in Joel. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He's making the land new. He's making all things new. God is dwelling with his people, wiping away our tears, removing our pain. But notice, the warning is still there. Remember, this was given to Christians in a day that they needed to understand it for their day. There was a warning there to his people. What does he give? Life eternal with the Lord. The Lord will dwell among men. Incredible. To his enemies. Equally horrible. The lake of fire, death, and dying that never stops. So what do we do with this? We praise the Lord for his work of redemption. But if we stop there, brothers and sisters, we're doing this Christian life wrong. We have to want that for others. It doesn't cost us anything but a bit of comfort and complacency, which is always good for us to let go of some of that. It doesn't cost us anything to tell others about this story, about this story of redemption and restoration. And in conclusion, I guess if we've learned anything from this book, I hope that we can see that the Lord means business, both in the chastening of his own people, which we saw in the book of Joel, and to see them turn back the judgment of his enemies and the restoration of his own people. These three truths should change the way that we do everything. If Sunday morning is the only time that you think about these things and the truth hasn't quite grabbed you yet, this speaks to all of our lives. These truths, every bit, every facet, our relationships, our money, our day-to-day, our future, every single thing that we do, these truths speak to that. If the Lord is making all things new then we have to work as his people, as his agents of redemption, to see that work come about. He will use us. And so as we come upon this new year, let me challenge each one of you as individuals. Pray how the Lord might use you to see that work come about. How is he currently using you? What is he doing with your life to see this work of redemption come about? How could he use you? To see it happen. Then let us pray together as a church. That the Lord would use us. Redeemer community. To do his work. Pray specifically.
pray expecting. Let's hope that he'll use us to do mighty works in this coming year. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we read these pages and understand what is coming for those who don't know you, Lord, help us to, rather than be complacent and glad in our own salvation, Lord, help us to be unsettled for the unbelief of others, that we would see what is in front of them and that we would rush to save them. Lord, help us to share the only thing that can, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that has the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And so, Lord, help us to preach it to all men and women that they might believe. Lord, help us as a church. Use us. Do what you will with us as individuals even that we might see this redemptive work come about. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.